Amen. You can be seated. Take your Bibles and turn, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, the, the Scripture passages will be up on the screen. And uh, we'll be walking through those together in moments to come. It's an important day for us as a church, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about that through the sermon and as we get toward the end of the sermon. But I hope that today you'll walk out of here with an understanding of kind of the responsibility that we have as believers because of the grace we've been given by God. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had had a very long week, which uh, happens in our house a lot. We have long weeks with kids and everything going on. And uh, it had been a long week. And uh, it was a Friday evening. And I, I looked, uh, sat down, and realized about 9.30 to 10 o'clock that everybody in the house was in bed but me. Everybody had gotten down. Everybody was asleep. It was a quiet house. And uh, you may not know this about me, but in general, I'm a night owl. I, I, can, I do my best with work and thinking. I do sermon preparation sometimes at night. And sometimes, though, I just need to kind of relax. And it been one of those weeks I just thought I wanted to relax. And so I, I sat down and I put on a show just looking for something to watch that I enjoy watching every now and then. And I watched an episode of it. The next thing I know, I looked down at my watch and I've been watching for like two and a half hours. Just one right after another. And this is the show I've been watching. How many of you have ever watched this show? You know what it is, right? How many of you have no clue what it is? A couple of you, all right? This is Shark Tank, and it's a—it's it, not a shark swimming with humans thrown in or anything, but here's what it is. There's a group of millionaires and billionaires that form this kind of panel. In fact, we've got a picture here of kind of what's happening. So you have millionaires and billionaires over there on the left, and over here you've got a guy that's got a product or a business or an idea that he's pitching to them for investment opportunities. Now, the guys on the left here have lots of money. I mean, Mark Cuban is a billionaire, uh, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, um, started the first kind of sports broadcast over the Internet company, Broadcast.com. This is the guy that started FUBU and has gotten that brand. Kevin O'Leary has uh, something with software and, and education and is a billionaire. Uh, she owns QVC or is major of that, and he right, does Internet security. In between them, they have several billion dollars. Billion with a B. And what happens is this guy comes up, and I don't even know what his thing is. It looks like some kind of wood something there, right? And they pitch the idea, and they ask him, how much sales do you have? How many, how, you know, what, what's, your, what's your profit margin? How much do you sell it for? How much does it cost? And they're asking all these questions because what they basically want to know is, if I invest my money into this company, is it going to be profitable for me? You see, here's the thing. These five people didn't get rich by throwing their money at bad investments. They want to invest in companies or products or something that's going to bring value back to them. In fact, all good investors want a good, what they call ROI, return on investment. In fact, sometimes in the, in the Shark Tank, the, one of the, especially the guy in the middle, that uh, education and billionaire, he'll say, how long will it take me to get my money back? So somebody will come in and say, I, I'm looking for $250,000 for 20% of my company. And he'll say, how long are you going to take to get my money back? Like, what's my return on investment going to be? Here's what I want to talk about today. This is kind of a, I don't want you to glaze over because we're talking business stuff, all right? The Lord, through His grace and His mercy, has invested in each one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ an enormous amount of capital. 
And while your works cannot save you and your works cannot make you closer or more loved by God, God does expect a return on his investment in your life. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you, who's the you here? Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to the church, but in essence, he's talking to us, right? You and me, all right? So, and you were dead. Now, this is one of those words that when, when, I, when I say it, sometimes my mouth just automatically travels back to my youth in rural northwest Tennessee. And I don't say dead. I say you're dead. Because that's how we said it in West Tennessee, dead, all right? And so this means, dead means dead. Like, Done, like over, like no hope, like you're finished. And he says, you were. Now, here's the question I have real quickly. Is anyone excluded from the you? No, this is all of us. I've mentioned this a couple of times in this series, but you and I in general grossly overestimate our goodness and importance before we came to Christ. Before Christ, we were dead, done, over, no hope, no chance. Of anything good. Dead. And the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. And then he's going to explain what you were doing. This is not what people who are without Christ think. But this is what they're doing. You were following the course of this world. You were just following the whims of what the world was teaching you. What if the world kind of said, this is cool, this is right. You just kind of follow along. Absolutely, that's good, that's good. You weren't controlling your own life. You know, sometimes people say, I don't want to, I don't want to follow Christ because I want to be in control of my own life. You're never in control of your own life. Following the prince of the power of the air. Now, who's that? Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. So this is the picture he's painting. Dead. Being led along by a sinful world. Following, controlled by Satan. You are the same as the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he continues it further. He says this. Among whom we all, all. Once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He says, you are absolutely no different than the people who you are out there living the most godless life you can imagine. In fact, I want you to think about, we're not going to have you say it, because that could turn ugly probably. If you in your mind could think of the most godless person you could think of, who would it be? Just in your mind, you think, boy, that person is the most godless person I have ever met or known or seen or know about. That person. Paul says, but whoever came into your mind, you were in the exact same condition as them. We were, by nature, children of wrath. And then comes two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But... God, this is who you were. This is what it was like. This is what the result was. You were in sin. You were dead. You were being led by Satan and the whims of the world, giving yourself to every lust and desire out there, believing that what you did didn't matter. But God, that's like shouting words right there. Y'all don't act like it's shouting words, but it is. See, we underestimate how terrible we were, and so we read that, we're like, yeah, I know, God saved me. Yeah, good, that's awesome. This is like being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us. John, in his uh, uh, first letter, 1 John, he says the love that God has for us, the way he describes it literally is this love, what country did it come from? Like, I've never seen anything like this before. This, what world is this from? What dimension is this from? This is from something I can't comprehend. This is amazing. It is something I can't grasp. He said he was rich in mercy. He was great with love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead, no hope, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I don't think you get it. Because you're just sitting there. Like, all right, how long we got here? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love he has for us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive forevermore because of Christ. You have been saved by grace. That is too good to be true. That is the person calling you on the phone line telling you you've just won a million dollars. You don't have a clue what their number is. Like, no way. That can't be true. That can't be right. This is like the greatest sweepstakes that has ever been done, not because of who you were, not because of what you've done, not because of anything good in you, but simply because of God. He has rescued you from an eternity separated from Him in eternal torment and given you a hope and a future and a life in Him. Praise be to God. And He says this. He raised us up. This is like He just keeps adding stuff. He raised us up with him and he seated us in the heavenly places. We have direct access to God. We have been equipped with the same power that Christ had. We have been given the same amount of the Spirit. And so that in the coming ages, so that means this is the reason he did it. This is the reason he lavished his love upon us. This is the reason he saved us from death. This is the reason that he gave us all that stuff, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture is next. Because it's grace that has saved you through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. He says, you ain't got anything to stand on. If you're out there telling people how good you are as a Christian, you have no basis for boasting because it is grace that has been given to you that made you a believer at all. And then there's this last part. For we, and this is verse 10, are his workmanship. We'll talk about that word in a minute. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, God has taken you. And he's taken this dead, lifeless form and he has molded into a masterpiece. The word there, workmanship, really means something more artistic than that. The, the word there is poema, which we get the word poem from. It meant more than just a poem, as we would say. It meant something of literary or artistic achievement. It was a masterpiece. Listen, if you've ever seen any drawing that I have done, I... Not only can I not sing, I cannot draw to save my life. Like if you were to ask me right now, draw a picture of your family, you know what it would be? Stick people is what it would be. Because that's where my artistic ability stops. And so anytime I'm in the presence of people that can draw, that can do artistic stuff, people that can do musical stuff, people that can do paintings or can do anything, it just blows me away. 
I was in the home of Marion and Stella Cook the other day. We were visiting, and he was walking me around, showing me all the stuff that he and his kids have done. And I just look at it, and I think, I don't have a clue to get started on that. Like, if, you, if I drew a house, it's going to be a, a square with a rectangle door and a roof. That's it. And just see it there. Now, some of you are artistic. I know that. And so you see all of the colors. And when you look at a canvas, you know exactly what you're going to paint. Or what you're going to draw, the music. When you look at that blank sheet, what you're going to do. What Paul says here is that our God is a creative artist. And with each and every one of us, he has created a unique masterpiece. But here's the reason. He created this masterpiece. Four good works. This is the return on investment part. He has saved you. He has rescued you. He has given you a place in the heavenlies with the dad. He is doing all of that with our heavenly father. And he says, all I expect out of all of that is that you will walk in the works that I prepared for you to do. Now, we could literally do an entire series of messages on what are the good works that he has envisioned for us to do. But today, I just want to focus on two of them. And this is what I want you to know. We have a a mission statement, a purpose statement here at First Baptist that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. What we're going to talk about today are two areas that I think we as a congregation, that I have been burdened as your pastor, that we need to focus on as we do that. Here's the first one. We need to invest in the commission. Now, just quickly, what does the word commission mean? And I'm not talking about like when you sell a car, you get commission if you're the one that sells it, all right? What does commission mean? You've been given a commission. What does that mean? A task, a, a job, something. Here's what's interesting about this word. This is going to, you know, I know this is really going to be deep here, but it, this is made up of two words and you cut it right here. And so this is calm mission. All right. So here's what mission means. Mission means mission. Task, job. Calm means with or together. And we need to invest in the commission that we have been given by our Savior. It said in Ephesians that he has prepared works in advance for us to do. And I don't think that's mysterious. What are the works that God's prepared for me to do? I think he has already told us multiple times, but two I want to focus on today. First comes in Matthew chapter 28. You know this, end of the time. This is Jesus getting ready to go back to the Father. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What nations? All. Now, that word nations there, when you think of nations, and when I think of nations, immediately a map comes into mind. That's not what is there. What this word means is people that have their own distinct language and culture and group. And so there are many more nations than there are nations. Does that make sense? There are many more people groups than there are nations. There are somewhere around 200 people groups in Nashville. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. Just in case we missed it, Jesus gives it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, notice this word, will. It's not a question of if. It's not a question of maybe. It's not a question of you can do this and do other things. This is you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Can I tell you something? I do not believe 
I do not believe that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and not be involved in his mission to the nations. I do not believe that you can actively pursue and follow Jesus and not have some participation in his mission to the ends of the earth. That doesn't always mean to the farthest reaches of the earth. He talks about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But I, can't, I, I just don't believe that this, that was so close to the heart of Jesus, that it's his last words to his disciple, that you can somehow become a follower of Jesus and go, ah, don't worry about that part. And if I don't believe that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and not be involved in the commission that he's called us to, then I definitely believe you can't be a church that is following Jesus Christ and not be actively involved in the commission that he has called us to. I was looking yesterday at my Time Hop app. Do you know what Time Hop is? The app that goes back and shows you all the stuff you did on social media the last four, five, six years. Six years ago or so, I preached a message here. And the question of the message was, are you staring in the mirror or are you looking out the window? And the point I made was that there are many, many, many churches that spend their time, their money, their volunteer hours, their energy looking inwardly and staring in the mirror. All their resources, all their time, all their effort goes into taking care of each other and focusing inwardly here. We constantly look in the mirror. But there are other churches that are consistently looking through the windows to the community around them and saying, how do we reach our community, our state, our nation, and our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And my prayer is that we become increasingly more a church that looks out windows than that one that stares at the mirror. But that means resources tell the story. And we need to begin to look at how do we as a congregation build budgets and give and go towards commission instead of just maintenance. We need to be more active about pushing our percentage that we give to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention that's doing mission work all over the world. We need to be better about Lottie Moon offering that goes to international missions and Annie Armstrong offering that goes to North American missions. We need to be better about our mission giving and praying and going. In fact, I believe that every individual ought to be involved in the commission to the nations. Three ways. We talk about it all the time. won't be new. You can pray. Let me just say, I said this, I don't know if it's in first service or second service, but I remember saying it last week, and as soon as I said it, that thing in your mind that goes, oh, why did I say that? You ever had those moments? Apparently not. You all love. You ever have those moments like you say something and go, oh, why did that come out? Well, last week in one of the services, I said, we're going to talk about the pray, give, go. I was doing the announcements at the end, trying to give this offering we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And I was like, oh, this is great. And I said, and if nothing else, you can pray. What does that make prayer sound like? Last resort. The least you can do. They have nothing else. I mean, if you don't have anything to get, you can at least pray a little bit. Can I tell you that the most important thing you can do when it comes to seeing the commission of God accomplished through the earth is to pray. To spend time in prayer. Find resources that help you pray for things. great book called Operation World helps you pray daily for a country around the world that is in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk to, find the International Mission Board website or the North American Mission Board website and pray for people on their birthdays or, or get, look, get in your uh, Sunday school material and just pray. Pick a country out and just pray for that country. 
pray for the mission trips that were going on this summer. One to uh, Puerto Seguro, Brazil, and one to Los Angeles, California. You know, the reality is we are sending trips to two places that are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, Puerto Seguro, Brazil, where we have been, I've been in a partnership with them through Ripley and now through First Goodlettsville for the last 10 years or so. And we have seen that place turn from one of the least church cities in Brazil to one that is moving towards one of the most. That's you, First Baptist Goodlettsville is a part of that. You've been a part of that. You've been involved in that. We need to pray for those people. Los Angeles, California is one of the least churched cities in the world. You are a part of helping a church be planted in their midst to see people come to Christ. That's our mission. Pray for those. Pray for those places. You can pray. You can give. You can give. Can I tell you a staggering number? Listen, we, we've got an amazing uh, set of trips going this summer to Puerto Seguro, to Los Angeles, our Centrikid, our Centrifuge. We'll talk a little bit more about Centrikid and Centrifuge in a minute. Can I just tell you as a church family that in order for all those trips to happen with the current people we have going, and we have a couple of people that may end up going, and so this number will go higher, for everybody to go on all the trips we've talked about, it's going to cost somewhere around $85,000. Now, if one of you have got that laying around and you just want to contribute, it will be great. Now, people expect to pay a portion of that. Absolutely. They, 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 they know they're responsible for their trip. They've committed to go provide, asking God to provide them the funds. Can I tell you something? You, First Baptist Gillisville, if you're not going, you can help be the answer to a prayer to providing funds for people to go. It's our trip. It's not those 30 people going to Los Angeles. It's not those 12 people going to Brazil. It's not their trips. It's our trips. You can give. And finally, you can go. In fact, I believe that every person that is a follower of Jesus Christ ought to give a week of their life every year to serve God somewhere. I don't mean you're going to go home and count up all the hours you've been to church in the year. I mean a week of your life to serve God. Some of you say, well, that ship has passed. I'm done with that. It's over. My favorite, one of my favorite stories about Brazil mission trips happened when I was in Ripley. It was the last year I went. I took a, a large team, the biggest team that Ripley had ever sent. We went to Brazil, and one of the ladies on that team was a lady Ms. named Miss Mae Dunaway. I love Miss Mae Dunaway. She committed to go. She said, I don't have a clue why I'm going, but I'm going. Miss Mae, and I'm not sure of her age, but I think she was early 80s. She said, I don't have a clue. I've never been on one of these things before, but I'm going. Miss May Dunaway went, and she was in the eyeglass ministry. Have you been in the eyeglass ministry? You know, you put the glasses on, you, and we have them read. And at that time, we were having them read a track. Now we have them read John 3.16. But at the time, we were reading a track, and it's different level of lines, and you're looking at it, trying on glasses. And we, we had been serving in our ministry teams for fully, fully at least 10 minutes total for the whole week. Like it's the first 10 minutes of the week. And I'm getting everything set up. And Miss May comes in. To, we were in a centralized, like the church was a centralized location. We had things set up. And Miss May comes in and goes, Brother Lau, I need your help. I need your help. I don't know what to do. I said, Miss May, what's going on? She said, the person that I just gave the glasses to, I said, do you want to hear more about Jesus? And they said, yes. I said, well, uh, Miss May, you tell, I, don't, I don't have a clue. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. You've got to come. I don't want to mess this up. 
And so I went in and we sat down. We talked about it. Young man gave his heart and life to Christ. We were very excited about that. Moved on. I said, thank you, Miss May. You're good. You saw that happen. Walked out. Five minutes later, Brother Lyle, I need your help. What's going on, Miss May? I asked this person if they want to know about Christ. They said, yes. Is every one of them going to say this? A lot of them are, Miss May. Yes. And she said, I, you got to, I said, I'm not going. This is you. She was not very happy with me at that particular moment. <laughs> I know what she thought. He drug me all the way to Brazil, and then he's going to make me do this. Ms. May Dunaway, that day, had like seven or eight people come to the Lord in her eyeglass ministry. Now, if you would have asked Ms. May, I remember asking her, just joking with her one time, like three years before she went, said, you going? She goes, I am too old for that kind of stuff. I'm not going. Some of you think, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not a good enough Christian, whatever that means. To go on a trip like that. I believe God's calling many of you to go. These ways. As a congregation. And as an individual. That's how you invest in the commission that God has given us. Here's the second thing we got to do. Not only invest in the commission. We need to invest in the next generation. This is biblical. This isn't just something I've come up with. Or the coolest thing to say. This is biblical. Look at what Psalm says here. This is... um, Psalm 78 says, He commanded our fathers to teach our children. That's God commanded our fathers to teach our children. And that the next generation might know the truth. That then they'll pass it on to the children that haven't yet been born. And they'll arise and tell them so that they should set their hope in God. He's saying, listen, this is something we pass down from generation to generation to generation. We tell the next generation, the next generation tells the next generation, and so on and so forth. But here's the problem. We failed in America in doing this. Let me show you a couple of statistics. This is from Tom Rainer in his book. Part of the builder generation, born before 1946. We've got anybody here born before 1946 that wants? Okay, a few. If you were born in the builder generation before 1946, 67% of those people said they were Christians. 67%. Now we go down through some generations. Don't put the number up yet, John, but we go down through some generations. So after the builder generation was the boomer generation. After the boomer generation was Generation X. After Generation X was the Millennials. Millennials are 1980 to 2000 born. So how many of you here were born between 1980 and 2000? All right? This is the Millennial generation. Look at that number. That's how many of the Millennial generation say they're Christian. Now, you don't have to be a strong mathematician to see that ain't good. We are in real danger of losing a generation. And it's because we haven't done what we're supposed to do. We haven't been intentional about giving of ourselves. Somebody said that grace is evidenced in your life when you put your own needs away and do whatever it takes to serve someone else. I'm just going to be real honest. I don't actually have a kid in the millennial generation. Eli's our oldest and he was born in 2003, but they're close enough. This frightens me. But why did that happen? A couple of reasons. First of all, it's because the builder and the boomers and my age group, to be honest about it, we were a lot of people that church and our faith in Jesus was a part of our life, but it wasn't really that important. And something I've said for a long time that we've talked about here at the church, but is worth repeating, that if your faith is not real to you, it will not matter to your kids. 
If you want your kids to grow up and be strong, now, listen, it's not a guarantee that if your faith is strong and good and real that they'll grow up and be interested. But I can almost guarantee you if your faith is superficial, it is something that you only put on on Sunday morning, that your kids see you through the rest of the week and they know that God and your relationship with Jesus Christ and following him is not a major priority in your life. Sports are a priority. Career is a priority. Other stuff is a priority in the way you spend and the way you active, activate your schedule and all of that stuff. If they see that that's priority, and not your faith to God, it will not matter to them. And we have a generation that grew up with parents, and they could take it or leave it. And when you put in the numbers, the church in America, if you look at the numbers, the church in America is in trouble. In the world, it's not. In the world, the estimates are that Christianity is going to grow faster than it's ever gone. But if you look at the numbers, not only do we have 15% that call themselves Christians, most, many of them are not in church of that 15%. And the average church attendance has gone from, on average, two times a week to three times a month. And so the children growing up in the millennial generation after them are going to have parents that aren't even as committed as the boomers and the Xers were. And suddenly we're going to have two generations that we've missed if we're not actively engaging them. Here's a second reason. That picture you flashed a minute ago, put it back up there. Anybody know what this is? It's a telephone. An old telephone is what I heard down here. What kind of telephone is that? Rotary dial telephone. How many of you had at some point in your life, in your house, a rotary dial telephone, right? How many of you have never seen one of these in live person? Okay, we got a hand. All right. How many, anybody here still have one working in your house? At your grandmother's? All right, we got, we had five in the first service that they are still using this. All right. Now, I barely remember this because by the time I came along, there was touch tone. Now, if you needed to, we are talking about this downstairs, you could switch the touch tone to rotary, and when you push the two, it would do that, you know. You didn't have to actually do this. Do you, anybody remember having to dial these things and you accidentally put your finger in the wrong thing? Oh, that's terrible. Right, you had to do it again. What if you called somebody's house and they weren't there? Too bad, right? Just rang. There's no such thing as voicemail or an answering machine. Those came along there. No caller ID, no call back, none of that. You just, I mean, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it fall? I mean, if you call somebody on the phone, nobody hears it. Did you call, right? Anybody really, anybody going out there looking for a phone today, get these? No, what, are, what kind of phones do you have today? iPhones, right? Cell phones, many of you have, think about it. If you would have thought, those of you that are old enough to think this, 20 years ago somebody would have said, you'd be carrying your phone around in church. That's ridiculous. That's never going to happen, right? It's a different world. Nobody goes out and buys rotary phones anymore unless they're a hipster that's trying to look like they're cool, right? Like, I want to show this off. It's, I'm authentic with my phone usage. All right. Now, here's the problem. There are a lot of churches that are still trying to do ministry with rotary dial phones in an iPhone generation. You, you know I'm not talking about phones, right? They're trying to do phone, trying to do church the same way you did it when rotary phones were the, all the rage. They're not anymore. Now listen to me very carefully. I don't mean in any way that we change the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but every generation has to evaluate how we communicate that generation to a generation that is different than the ones before. And we need to invest resources, money, understanding into the next generation. Can I tell you what statistics tell us? 
that if a child does not come to accept Christ by the age of 18, their chance of accepting Christ goes precipitously down quickly. We need to invest in the next generation. Here's what I want to tell you. The Lord has blessed us. Here at First Baptist Church, we're not one of those statistics that are stagnant or falling behind. The Lord is giving us people. We're seeing an increase in attendance. We're seeing an increase of people. Our youth group is strong and vibrant. It's growing. Our children's ministry is strong and vibrant. It's growing, from, especially from where it was two or three years ago. We've seen an increase in all of that. But if we're going to be a church, and I believe that part of the responsibility that I have as a pastor is to leave this church better off when I leave than when I found it. And the reality is, as a member of this church, whether you're here for 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, 2 years, part of your responsibility is attempt to leave this church in a better place. I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about in accomplishing the mission that God has given us, to leave it in a better place than when you found it. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be intentional about the commission of God to the nations, and we've got to be intentional about the next generation. That's what this summer is about. We have two mission trips going, Los Angeles and Puerto Seguro, been combined in those two trips. We now have around 42 people going. We still have room if you would like to be a part of that, 42 people going on mission trips outside of here. It's the first time we've ever done two major trips like this in the same summer, but we feel this is what God's called us to do. In addition to that, we've got Centrakid and Centrifuge Camps. And what's interesting about Centrakid is just a few years ago, I remember we were taking um, four adults and eight kids. And man, that was great. We were excited about that. This summer, we've made 35 reservations for camp. And we may, there's a chance, we may have to increase that one or two. Eight adults, 27, 28 kids. That's amazing. Our youth camp, many of our youth are going to to Los Angeles, but we've also got 15 to 20 kids that are going to Centrifuge. And so when you put all that together, we're in the high 80s, low 90s of people that are going on mission or to camp this summer for First Baptist Church. And I believe that part of investing in the commission and investing in the next generation. Listen, can I tell you something? In my experience as a pastor for 14 years, my experience as a pastor has taught me that you can, we talked about the next generation Nothing will impact the life of a kid or a youth more than a week of camp or a week on mission. Nothing. And you are providing, through this church, opportunities for kids that would never get a chance to go to be impacted eternally with the gospel. In just a minute, we're going to have a time of response. And here's what the response is going to be today. I'm going to be, nor- I'll be normal response. I'll be down front. If you're here, maybe the Lord's laid on your heart that you need to be more involved in the commission. And maybe you need to go and you don't know what that means. I'll be standing here. I'd love to talk with you. I'll be here and you, you know that you've never given your heart to Christ. And I was describing all those things. You couldn't have an experience that you remember when you gave your heart to Christ and Christ's grace saved you. You, you don't remember that. And this morning you want to talk about that or join in the church or getting baptized. I'll be here to talk about all that. But also during this time, we're going to take a special offering for this summer. Now, this offering that we're going to take during the response time is not your regular weekly budget offering. We're going to do that like we always do in this service as you leave today. They'll be standing there. And so if you come with an offering, don't put it up here, all right? You can put that on the way out. But during the response time, on the wings here are two offering plates. And I'm just going to ask you, whatever the Lord lays on your heart to invest in the next generation and in the commission of our church this summer, I'm going to ask you to do. 
So during the response time, I'm going to pray in just a moment. The band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song. During that time, I'm going to ask you to come and to place your offering for the summer trips in one of these two plates. Let's pray together.